0: Welcome along to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. We are almost there. We're on the eve of the Australian Open getting underway for 2021. It's been a hell of an effort to get to even this stage. There's a busy week at Melbourne Park with so many different events going on, including the ATP Cup and two ATP 250s to keep us company. The players have been tuning up nicely. The weather, on the most part, looking pretty good for the first week. Some intriguing first round matchups we're going to take a look at as well. I'm Peter Mercado, taking care of the podcast for the uh, the next couple of weeks, being here in Australia alongside me. He's been through quarantine, he's out of quarantine, and now he's getting ready for another AO
1: Radio campaign. Chris Bowers, hello. Hi, Pete. Yeah, it's great to be here. I mean, it's sort of, it's not quite the same, but it's, you know, we're making the most of it. We're keeping the tennis circuit going in a way that is safe and permissible.
0: In a moment we're going to hear from your interview with the head of the Australian Open, the tournament director and Tennis Australia CEO Craig Tyley, who's going to talk about a range of different things leading up to the tournament and how it all has actually come together. But I look out over the site, we're actually sitting here at Melbourne Park recording this, It's looking a picture. It's looking ready to go. Yes, there's going to be fewer spectators here, but we'll still have crowds across all the three different zones, the three roof stadiums and on the outside courts. It will look
1: and feel like a usual tennis tournament. It'll be a genuine Australian Open because there will be no international visitors. I mean, normally, um, the majority of the fans that come to Melbourne Park are Australians. This time it will be sort of 99%. It's only a uh, a few people who are foreign nationals who are here anyway no one is allowed to come to Australia at the moment you know for leisure purposes so uh, it will be a genuine Australian Open and uh, in a way you know, it's quite good that the tournament can find its way back to its roots like this and who knows maybe we'll get an Australian champion. We didn't have too many
0: spectators, fair to say, for the ATP Cup and the 250s that were held this Got week.
1: during the week.
0: It did, but it was all very last minute in terms of how it came together yes. and getting approval for, cra- uh, for people to actually attend and all that sort of stuff. But I think the quality of tennis that we've seen across this week has been remarkably high, considering the fact that the players are in quarantine for two weeks.
1: Yeah, I think... There's two ways of looking at the ATP Cup. One is to compare it with last year and to say it just lacked the atmosphere, which it was always going to do, because last year was just a fantastic you know, three-city event with packed houses. The other way of looking at it is to say the players... Absolutely wanted to win it. I don't like judging determination by smashed rackets, but there were a few of those yes. along the way. And uh, you know, I was watching the Djokovic-Sverdlov match, and when Sverdlov took the first set, I thought, "Hmm, how much does Novak want this?" It's, it's it's a truncated run into the Australian Open. He wanted it. He fought back. He won in three, and then he was very, very angry when Serbia lost uh, the uh, lost to Germany on a uh, champions tie break in the deciding doubles.
0: Yes. And well done to Russia for getting the win over Italy. Russia always predicted we going to be the form. To... Jill Krabis told me to say that, yes, she predicted that Russia was going to take out the title. So well done, Jill.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it was basically a two-man team. I mean, with the greatest respect to the other two players, they did this without Hachanov. Yes. You know, he was playing in one of the 250 events we've had at Melbourne this week. And for Medvedev and Rublev, to do it the way they did and to be genuinely happy as a team. And uh, it was lovely, actually, Team Russia. They have a, what, a French coach and they have a Spanish coach. It's real sort of uh, international multilateralism, multilingualism, uh, but wonderful to see. And uh, I think that might set a marker for the year. And
0: the want to play for your country too, I mean, that was still high. Yes, this is about match practice, but when you throw the ATP Cup into it, You could see the passion from the players, too.
1: Absolutely. And I was in the uh, Team Germany press conference after they beat Serbia. And I said to the Zverev brothers, um, you know, you're playing Russia now. Is your motivation greater, less or the same, given that you have a Russian family background? And Misha gave the uh, lovely diplomatic answer of, well, you know, look, we want to win for our team, but, you know, we don't hate others. And, you know, we're good friends with most of the other players on the tour. You know, the classic diplomat's answer. So Asha said, actually, for me, no, the motivation's greater. I want to beat them. Yeah.
0: And fair enough, too. Yeah. So it's some really high-quality tennis across the week, high-quality tennis in the 250s as well. And now we prepare for the Australian Open uh, itself we've uh, gone through the quarantine period we've got ourselves set up here we're in various zones the mass rule we did have a day off uh, the Thursday leading into the Australian Open where there was uh, maybe a little bit of a scare in terms of a COVID uh, case a positive COVID case from a hotel worker but we managed to navigate our way through that and now we're on the cusp of it and there will be a crowd yes you
1: mentioned the crowd let's not take it for granted after last year
0: well let's just say on AO Radio, we won't be putting those effects on. They will be from actual spectators in the actual stadium. So we're very much looking forward to that. As I imagine, Chris, Craig Tiley, the Tennis Australia CEO and Australian Open Tournament Director, is as well. You we had the opportunity to catch up with him uh, earlier in the week.
1: Yeah, I'm a great fan of Craig Tyly's because I think he's one of these... Players, one of these officials who's very calm, um, and I think he's got absolutely the right personality for dealing with this kind of thing. Um, he's had to deal with changing realities. I thought he was one of the luckiest people around this time last year. I thought the Australian Open 2020 got itself played, then the pandemic struck, and it would all be over by now. Huh. Uh, fat, a fat chance of that happening. But uh, he's had to go through various different options, and I started off by asking him when. The scenario of the Australian summer that we've had this week which is uh, two men's tournaments three women's tournaments and the ATP Cup when that first started to take shape
2: when the pandemic started in March in 2020 uh, we started to go through our plans and it pretty much changed every week because you, the, the changing environment we didn't think we'd be where we were by the end of the year but it was really um, it was around uh, around Christmas that uh, around the end of December where We then had to make the final decision on getting all the players, uh, getting a 1,000 people from around the world, players, staff, media, et cetera, and their entourage into Australia for 14 days of quarantining and then coming out to play this week of tennis, which I don't think ever before in our game, there's been six major professional events in one week in one city, Um, but that's, of course, what the pandemic does. It makes a lot of changes, but wow, what a magnificent week of tennis it's been, and and here we are, you know, 48 hours away from the start of the Australian Open and and uh, we just finished the draw and I'm, I am just, you know, I couldn't be more proud of the effort the team's put on to get to this point. We've had a very bumpy ride uh, because we're dancing around the impacts of a, of a pandemic. I remember back
1: in May you put out a statement that, Shocked me, because I thought that by January 2021, we'd be over the worst of this. But I suspect a lot of people thought that in terms of the pandemic. And you said there are four possibilities, including not even hosting the Australian Open at all, not having it. If someone had said to you at that stage, you will end up with pretty much a normal Australian Open, but with a truncated run in, would you have thought that was realistic?
2: Well, I was optimistic about that possibility. um, But I was realistic about the chances that happening will be going to be more remote. But I did encourage our team to that's what we're going to go for and and if we can get it done a few things had to go in our favor we needed to have a community that had no transmission of the virus Uh, we needed the players to agree to come and do 14 days of quarantine we need the tours to agree to push the push the whole summer out so we could put on events that they could play and we needed to have an environment and protocols in place that protected the players and if we had all that which was going to at that point you know six months ago be a miracle because of where the world was at But one thing that we didn't estimate was that in January and February this year, we'd be at the height of the pandemic and and continue to be in the height of the pandemic. It's still a problem around the world, but this country has done a very good job managing it, but it's been tough lockdown measures that got to this point. But, you know, now here we are and, and sometimes we pinch ourselves and say, I cannot believe we're here. We've got two weeks to go. We've already had, you know, we've already had two weeks of quarantines. The players have been here, two weeks of practice. And, uh, and a week of matches. And, uh, and, of course, the weather, like it was today, always throws a curveball, but, but um, the team's going to pull us off because we're going to continue to do it in a safe way and, and uh, we'll continue to play our through regardless of what happens.
1: The world will see a Melbourne that is, uh, to a certain extent, in relative normality because there are very few local cases and that's only been one in the last uh, few weeks. And yet it wasn't always like that. One hundred and eleven days of lockdown last year. There must have been moments when you thought there's no way we'll ever get this done
2: well particularly because of the way we were managing it if there was one new infection everything locked down and you know we were for 111 days confined to our homes 23 hours a day and could only leave for an hour to go to the grocery store or to the, to the pharmacy and uh, then had to come back and only one person per household could leave, leave. so it was very tough and uh, everyone was at home so dogs cats children doesn't matter who you had everyone was in a room and so it was tough for a lot of people so we paid the price but the price the outcome of that price was a good one uh, the economy's has rebounded. Uh, we've had one local case in the last five weeks or four weeks here in Melbourne. Um, we may have one or two more. Um, you don't know. We may have a few more. But the government's got a very strong contact tracing and localization measures that to, to stuff it out if it happens. And that's enabled us to then have an open with crowds. Um, the only requirement we have is our crowds carry a mask. And then if they are indoors in the um you know the shopping areas on site they just put the mask on otherwise they it would be, just be normal.
1: How much have you had to help in convincing the people of Victoria that it was a risk worth taking to bring the world's tennis community in after all the efforts they've made, or was there a feeling that actually the whole point of making these efforts is so that you can welcome the world back in?
2: Well, I think a bit of both Chris I think uh, a lot of lobbying um I didn't know there was such a thing until this this year. But talking to all forms of government, with federal government, our state government and all different branches of it and departments in it. And we've come to build really close friendships with all the leaders. And I look, I think the Daniel Andrews, our premier here in Victoria, has done a magnificent job. He's taken a lot of heat because he's made some tough decisions, but that's what leadership's about. But he's done really well and, and he loves the tennis. He loves the showcase Melbourne does to the world. And I think the government saw it as an opportunity – If we can have no transmission or low transmission, there's no such thing as no risk. It's always just low risk. If we can have that and we can find a way to bring all the best tennis players and media from around the world into Melbourne, then we're onto something. And so following that, the support of them, we knew financially it was going to be a very difficult exercise. We're going to run multi-millions of debt into this, but it's going to be a worthwhile investment because it's a platform for growth for us into the future, and we'll quickly return that money uh, as we make make some more uh, have some more success into the future, but we are going to send a signal to the world that Melbourne is, no question, in this circumstance, the the event capital of the world, and 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 the, and the major sporting events and entertainment events capital of the world, and that's going to that signal will be worth you know huge amounts of uh, opportunity for Melbourne in the future. So that's really my main motivation and our team's main motivation, besides the fact that. You know, the local chefs, the local artists, the local tennis players, the local tennis clubs, I should say, and coaches, uh, the local restaurants and the local musicians are all part of this event. So we've paid them all to do gigs and and do their art on site and come onto the site. And so we're we're trying to fund the economy to get it going again. And, and the result's been great. We also employ over 10,000 people. So, so we do have a direct economic impact on the city and we're seeing that already. And Crowds will come out of it'll feel a bit strange for the players, particularly the second week when there's the stadium is three quarters filled the more and you're playing in front of a, in a raucous crowd having fun.
1: I remember back fifteen years ago when Marcus Bagdatis got to the final, I mean, Melbourne became a Greek city. Now, if Sitsipas were to have a run to the semis or final, or win it, I mean, you could have the same thing. Or could you, given the restraint on the numbers?
2: The restraint on the numbers is really minimal in, in the biggest sense of it, because we, even though we normally get 840,000 people through the gate, that's not still capacity. We could get still over a million, um, and uh, if we would get, hit our capacity target every day, we have 14 days, 25 sessions. This year is going to be half of that, and it's going to be half of that by design. So we'll probably be the same size that Roland Garros or Wimbledon are, more or less, in, in crowd numbers, obviously. Um, but we have 25 sessions, so we help by that. Those others don't; they just have a session a day, and that's what works well for them, and they're very good at it. Um, but but in our case, we've got, you know, I think that the, the, there's going to be there'll be enough crowds in the stadium where people are going to feel like the energy of the crowd, and and there's no restrictions on them having a good time. Uh, obviously, we've got to be safe and 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 be secure. But um, but yeah, I think I, look, I'm really excited to see that picture, that vision of great players playing. trying to beat each other, crowd cheering uh, and the commentators saying, you know, how great and how safe this is. And because I don't believe we're going to see this for quite a while.
1: We obviously had a few headlines made by players um, reacting in the early stages of quarantine, um, perhaps in a way that they might resile from a little bit now. You've been around the tennis world a while. Have you actually seen tennis players grow as people based on what they've had to deal with in terms of getting to Australia, quarantine and some of the restrictions?
2: You know, I think that's the first time I've been asked that question. It's really a great question because the answer is yes. Um, yesterday, there were two weeks in quarantine. 72 players were couldn't leave the room at all for two weeks. So We were putting up exercise bikes and, and weights and and it was run in a very strict regime. We were on the outside of quarantine. It was run entirely by uh, by the Justice Department, which is the prison services and the police. and and you know they don't mess around, and they're very good at what they do. and uh, And so we' were on the outside in those two weeks. The players took a first week to get used to the adjustment. then they they resigned to the fact, "I'm in here for two weeks, I've got to figure it out. Some were able to get out and practice uh, for a couple of hours a day, it's also very restricted how that worked. Um, And the the result was excellent. You know, there was one player that tested positive for the coronavirus and they had to isolate for another 14 days. Um, But that player is now out and practicing and doing well, so there's no one that left. But then yesterday we had uh, someone test positive. There was a hotel worker, and that's horrendous, a hotel worker because they could have infected all these people. So very quickly we had 570 players and their teams, which we had to lock down, isolate, Get tested and stay hours later to get the test result. But 24 hours later, they're all negative, and so we continue on. But the thing for me that was the standout in answer to your question was they the way the players handled yesterday was exemplary. I actually was a little bit shocked because I thought there were going to be some resistance to this. It's kind of crazy. You, know, you go, you just come out. You've been three out of four days out of quarantine, and you're back into this. And the fear of having to go into four weeks, and uh, and they they handled it so well so maturely, so well, with, with ease, acceptance. I think the experience of the two weeks of quarantining and that yesterday experience has prepared them pretty well for anything that comes their way. And, and the discipline of what you're supposed to do, how you can clean your hands, how you got to physically distance and wear a mask and, and not take it for granted. Because while you may not get sick as a, as a very high-performing athlete, you can transmit the virus to a vulnerable person that could get sick and will die. So, you know, that's the ultimate responsibility they have. And I've seen them take it up really as very mature people.
1: We obviously want to beat the virus so that we can get back to a semblance of normality, though clearly the world will not be the same normal as we had, uh, you know, at the end of this, as we had at the beginning. Do you have you come across anything in having to adjust to this that you think may be a model for the tennis circuit of the future, or the way one organises a a season of a couple of ATP warm up tournaments, a couple of WTA tournaments, uh, leading into a, a major.
2: Well, yeah, you know, the pandemic is it's a it's not a dis it's not a disrupter. It's actually an accelerator. And I've I've had our team let's look at this completely different. Let's shift our business model. Let's look at other sources of revenue. Um, I, I do think that the, that it, it is going to impact, uh, if we try and repeat what we did before the pandemic, we're going to fail. Uh, it's a new world. It's going to, it's, it's, a, you know, the, the new normal. I, 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 I just look at it really as a new world. We've got to adapt and adjust. And I think we're going to go through some more hard trips. If uh, I'm not being pessimistic, I'm trying to be realistic there. But uh, whether it be economic or whether it be managing the virus or, mu- or or mutations of the virus, I think we'll go through that. I think in a you know, for tennis to be successful, you need two things: mass gatherings and international travel. And the enemy of those two is a pandemic. So um, so we we got to figure out a way how to do that. So I think that I think the tour and tennis should look at a regionalized approach. And I've always been an advocate of this. Um, and and here maybe you go to a region, you do your quarantine period, you do your isolation period, and then you go and compete freely for, for a period of time. That may not be economically viable for the region because they've got to pour the money in, but there's enough regions around the world where it could be, and try and limit the amount of travel a tennis player would have to do because doing it week in and week out, I was talking to Benoit Paire, who's, who I think is to handle this whole pandemic like an absolute champion, but he's been 33 days in quarantine since the end of September. And, uh, you know, that's four months. That's a month of four months. It's not a sustainable career for you to be able to do that. So, so we have to have better protocols if you're a recovered case, if, you, if you're shedding the virus and, and you, you're, non, you're non-infectious, uh, that, that group's got to be treated a certain way. If you're vulnerable, if you have asthma or whatever, that group's got to be treated a certain way. If you're normal and you get it and you can transmit it, you've got to be treated a certain way. So we've got to, we've got to work that out. I think we've got a model here that works. And it's proven it's worked. The numbers are going to prove that it's worked. They have today. We've got, we've got everyone out here competing and playing. Uh, obviously, we hope to stay that safe. You never know what's going to happen. You can wake up to a surprise in the morning. Um, but uh, but we're going to do our best, and we're going to have some great tennis. And finally, Craig,
1: you are a very sort of laid-back character, or so you seem. I mean, you must have your moments when you want to throw something at a uh, at a wall or whatever. Are you as calm as you seem, or is this just something that you've learned as a way of dealing with whatever happens to come your way
2: yeah it's a good question i mean we've had uh, everything thrown at us uh and from the point of someone saying it's not going to happen to it is going to happen i get motivated what by by what people say you cannot do and then that gives me an idea to prove it wrong so um but that's just i've kind of always been that way but but really it's not about me it's about the team the team has done an, an absolutely Herculean job of of pulling this off and and i you know i um I think I more get eaten up inside when things become stressful. But I do, um, as, as a leader, I, you know, I have to show my calmness and confidence and, uh, but I but I do feel it. And, and I, and I think the, you know, for five hours a day for 15 straight days, I went on a conference call, a zoom call with all the players. And I think you know, having a sense of calmness and, and, uh, and confidence and, you know, I can't control the uncontrollables. So I'm just going to, I'm going to deal with what, what we can do our best at and, and focus on that. And we've done that.
1: Well, congratulations on the ATP Cup, on the two ATP two hundred and fifty events, and all the very best for the Australian Open.
2: No, thanks, Chris. Always good to see you. I know when I see you, things are happening. So, yeah, so it's good to have you go through the fourteen days of quarantine. And yes, yeah, that you, was that was an event. It, it was an event, and you have you have your own stories to tell on that one. But uh, but no, we gonna we'll have an exciting and, and the ATP have been magnificent in supporting this happening because they had to make some changes to their schedule, and they you know we just kind of drinking from the fire hose here for you know for eight, nine, ten weeks, whatever it is. The staff and the team at the ATP are doing it every single week and uh, so that's a tough gig. So I think the players need to give their staff a massive break and and uh, to try and pull things off because it's going to be difficult.
0: So there's Craig Tiley, the CEO of Tennis Australia and the tournament director of the Australian Open. I do like that last bit where you asked him uh, whether he's just this calm, is just something that appears on the exterior or whether it's on the interior as well. I thought that was a fascinating response because he is Someone who's quite calm all the way through. But surely there have been times throughout the last nine, ten months where he's thought, gee, is this all worth it? With all the stress and the pressure that comes with it.
1: Yeah, but I thought it was also interesting what he said about he is motivated by when people say he can't do things. So I think, uh, you know, although he never played at the very highest level, he is a very, very experienced tennis player and tennis coach. And he has that cussedness of saying, right, this is a seemingly impossible situation, Let's still get through it.
0: The other thing, I mean, there are a few things to take away from it. One thing that, that was only mentioned briefly during the interview that I think is worth underlining in a tennis podcast is don't underestimate what these tournaments do for tennis at a local level in the countries that they're played at, not just here at the Australian Open, but all around the world, all across the ATP Tour. It's not just about the entertainment factor and seeing the best players and getting spectators in, but the income that those tournaments generate, particularly this one, and I could talk about this from experience because I'm involved at a local level, the funding that comes to local tennis clubs to be able to help us with our operation comes from events like this. If you don't have an Australian Open, like don't have it at all, then that means that that income is not coming in for the year and it's really hard because the trickle down effect is, so you go from National Federation, you think about the players that are being supported in those local countries then down to the grassroots level and it's felt there as well so don't just think of the tournaments that appear in your town as just about those particular events there's the trickle down effect that goes to tennis at the lower levels too that's why these tournaments are so important
1: yes i suspect clubs like the one that you're chair of will get less money this year because the australian open will make a thumping great loss but in order to keep the continuity going but i think not only is is, is craig right and you're right to pick up on it but i also think that there's just that enthusiasm level when you've got a big tournament and i include Others than just the four majors here, I include, you know, the the, presti- the prestigious um, tennis uh, masters, one thousand series in the men and the equivalent level in the women. When they come to town, they inspire youngsters, and you will often see in in streets where there, you know, no courts around, kids will find a racket and an old ball, and they'll just be hitting it backwards and forwards across the road it's that that really energises the the tennis community and in a way um, I know Wimbledon couldn't happen last year because its circumstances meant that there was only a very small window for that to happen but I think the reason why um, so many tournaments have been keen to run, three of the four majors and uh, various uh, tournaments on the ATP and WTA tours is that they know that the enthusiasm for tennis is important and around looking around melbourne park you know you see a slogan play tennis and it's you know people will pick up a racket if they are inspired to do so and once they've picked it up they'll enjoy the sport and then they'll buy tickets to tennis tournaments and that's all part of the tennis economy which is so important
0: it is it is and we'll see how it plays out but yes getting slightly less funding is better than getting zero funding for the year two so i understand what it does at the grassroots level a few other things to come out of it i thought that regionalized approach in my opinion is actually not a bad one in the current climate that we're in
1: but i've always felt this and i was a great fan of the old davis cup format but it's one weakness was the fact that you would get in a plane and fly somewhere for three or four days and then fly somewhere else and i just thought no in this day and age where the environment is a big problem and the when we've beaten covid the environment will still be there climate change will still be an issue and uh, circuits you know industries like tennis like professional tennis which go all over the world they're going to have to keep their their carbon footprint down and therefore to have regionalization and where there is a clear passage from one swing to another and i think actually that you know, especially this year when we've uh, still got COVID, I think there needs to be cooperation between countries, like, for example, France, Germany, and Great Britain, so that when players are finished at Roland Garros, they can maybe go to Germany to play Stuttgart or Halle, or go to um, London to play uh, London Queens or uh, Eastbourne, and with, you know, without having to quarantine because they've already come from a safe area. So in a way, COVID will provide the test for this regional approach, which I think is going to be necessary in the long run anyway, because uh, unless there's some major breakthrough on sustainable aviation fuels, I think there will be a requirement for the tennis world to reduce the amount of air miles it clocks up in an average year.
0: Can't wait to see the ATP tennis train making its way through a city near you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And why not? Around Europe, around
0: America. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's an interesting one. He did mention he used the terminology... We won't see anything like this for a little while, which I took to to mean that, uh, without putting words in his mouth, you know, tennis with crowds, with 14-day quarantine leading up, those sort of things. Like, we will still see tennis, but we may not see tennis in front of crowds. We may not see it as big as what we're seeing it here at the Australian Open over the next couple of weeks.
1: Yes, it reminds me of that prophetic thing at the start of the First World War. You know, the lights are going out. They may not come back on for some time. I don't think it was quite that sort of grim. But I do think that... What he's saying is the effort that's gone in to making this Australian summer, the the ATP events, the WT events and the um, Australian Open happen, has been so um, intensive that you can't do that more than a couple of times a year. And it's an interesting question. What is the acceptable period for a tennis player to go through quarantine? You know, ben, uh, Benoit Pair, was it, 33 days in the last four months? That surely can't be sustainable in the long run. Yeah. So there have got to be ways for it to happen.
0: Well, we wish him well. We wish the tournament well. It's going to be an interesting couple of weeks coming up. This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast.
2: On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com. This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast.
0: Peter Mercado and Chris Bowers here with you live from Melbourne Park. Well, we're live. The podcast is pre-recorded. We're now going to look in earnest to what's going to unfold over the next couple of weeks. And the draw was out on Friday, Melbourne time. There's some very interesting matches all the way through. A couple to highlight uh, first off in terms of the opening round and the one that stands out to me, as I'm sure it will stand out to you, Denis Shapovalov versus Yannick Sinner. That's going to be a good one. That's, uh, that's transporting me back to Milan. That's what that's doing. Grigor Dimitrov, Marin Cilic. Yeah, that's the one that's jumped out at me. Uh, we've got Kevin Anderson, and Matteo Berrettini. We've got Kay Nishikori and Pablo Carreño Busta. Oh, I miss saying that name. Um, Then you've got the all-Brit clash, Evans versus Norrie, too. Just to name a few, are there any others outside of that group that are really standing out to you, Chris?
1: Uh, No, I mean, I've tended to look uh, ahead a couple of rounds. I think you picked up the main ones, but uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, Djokovic-Vavrinko in the fourth round, it's funny how often those guys hit in the middle of this tournament, um, hit each other, and... uh, You know, it's basically saying to Djokovic, he's got to be ready, because if Avrinka does get to the fourth round, uh, he will have played himself in without getting too tired.
0: One name that I do want to pick up on, young Aussie player, who's actually unranked, has received a wild card into the Australian Open, Lee Tu, Uh, started playing tennis, then had some injuries and left the tour, was actually coaching in Adelaide and Darren Cale's been based in in Adelaide for most of the year saying, well, now you've got the ability, you can go out here and do this. Been playing really well in the UTR circuit that's been playing around Australia while the rest of the world's been shut down. He comes up against Feliciano Lopez. So this guy doesn't have a ranking, walks in, he's going to play Feliciano Lopez first up. It's going to be one of many very interesting stories over the next couple of weeks because remembering... The qualifiers. If you come up against a qualifier, and there's a few of them in the draw, they haven't played qualifying for a couple of weeks. It's not the usual rush that they would get off the back of qualifying. Which
1: makes you wonder whether, when you see players with a Q in front of their name, you think, okay, they've um, they're in form. Are they in form, given that it's three weeks since they finished qualifying? Yeah. I suspect the answer's no. Although they may well be, ben- they may have the benefit of having won matches and the benefit of the rest.
0: Nick Kyrgios, always a threat. He's unseeded this year. He's in the same section. little section of the draw is Ugon Humbert, the 29th seat, and Dominic Thiem. Gosh, that's going to be a tough run through. And then the same part of the draw as Diego Schwartzman, uh, Denis Shapovalov, Felix auger Yassim, Benoit Paire. That section of the draw, it's the, the second quarter of the men's singles draw.
1: I feel the draw in the men's is top-heavy. Yes. I feel that if Nadal is fit... He ought to get through to the final. I, know, I mean, no disrespect to anybody else in the bottom half, but you know, for me, um, the real competition is going to come in the top half. And if uh, if team is going to win a second major, he may well have to beat Djokovic and Nadal in successive matches, or uh, if Nadal's not fit, then it could be uh, Djokovic, he has to beat Djokovic and Medvedev in successive matches. And he lost to Medvedev in the final of the. Uh, ACB finals.
0: Yeah, well, Djokovic has got Jeremy Shardy first up. That's not going to be an easy match for him. Uh, Raphael Nadal has Laszlo Gera of Serbia first up. Uh, some of the Aussie names, uh, the big one, of course, Alex Dimonor taking on Tennis Sangren. Uh, some of the other Aussies, John Milman taking on Corentin Moutet. You've got Jordan Thompson taking on Casper Root. David Goffan taking on Lexi Popran. That could be a dangerous match, that one for Goffan. Popran playing some good tennis uh, over the past
1: week. Yes, and Goffin got stuck last year. He struck me as being forever on the verge of really connecting with some of his best form, and he never did. And I think it's a little bit of... This is a slightly now-or-never season for Goffin.
0: And uh, good to see Tanasi Kokonakis back in action too.
1: Yes. um, Perennially injured, Tanasi. He he needs matches. (laughs) He does. He needs lots of matches. Um, I suppose he's fortunate that there are a lot of players who need matches at the moment.
0: So plenty to work through there. I'm looking through some of the other wild cards and lucky losers and uh, folks along the draw. Is there anything jumping out at you with that? I mean, you know, we could go through some of the other bigger match-ups at the moment
1: too. I think Sitsipas, uh, he's got Gilles Simon well, the, first up. The interesting thing with Sitsipas will be that this is the place where he ought to thrive because there is such a massive... Greek community in Melbourne. This is in effect his home slam. What interests me is how many people will there be there? Now, if they have, say, the Rod Laver Arena 50% full, because... You know, in the second week and he is in the quarterfinals or semifinals then the atmosphere could be absolutely electric as long as there are enough people to make it so
0: Yes and uh, the, the numbers on site will reduce as there are fewer matches going along and the other one to mention too is Daniel Medvedev and Vashek Pospisil Medvedev in, in great form at the moment racing through the ATP Cup Pospisil had a good presents, end of last year didn't he? presents a challenge first up too never any easy matches first up but that is a particularly difficult one
1: I was impressed with Medvedev in the ATP Cup. I thought, in particular, the way he came through against Sverev. They had a 10-minute final game. Um, Medvedev broke Zverev 6-5, uh, third set. And then there was a very, very long game when they were both nervous. But the way Medvedev just held it together, I, I was impressed with that. I, I've slightly underplayed his chances. I haven't picked him for any of the majors this year, but... I have to say I was impressed how much I'm ever going to give that much credence to events the week before a slam. I don't know, but I did think he was looking very good.
0: Yes, and a few of the others to to focus on. Carlos Alcaraz, the the 17-year-old actually qualified into the Australian Open. He'll be here and, and maybe not a force to be reckoned with this year, but certainly one to watch for the future.
1: Yes, I I think this is about gathering experience. Um, I just hope he in, comes and enjoys himself. You know, he's seventeen. He's at that age when, yes, he's got to be very professional about what he does. But nobody expects him to do big things. So this is the year he can play without pressure and gain the experience by by trying things.
0: And uh, don't forget my man Aslan Karatsev, the Russian. He's in me time capsule. He uh, qualified through. Get on board, which probably means now he's going to lose in the opening rounds.
1: I we look at your record Yeah, all right, time we'll capsule. move on,
0: move on, move on, because we can't forget the doubles. Before we have our say on the doubles, let's hear what two gentlemen who know a thing or two about the caper have to say. Bob and Mike Bryan sat down with our colleagues at ATP Uncovered to talk about which teams to watch out
3: for in 2021. So we're newly retired. We're on the outside looking in now, and we're asked to preview the 2021 doubles teams and what's in store on the double side of the ATP Tour. Cool, let's do it.
4: What team do you think is going to be the one to beat? and Murray back in the house. They obviously had great success a couple of years ago. And I was surprised when they broke up. And they're, they're coming back together. They, they complement each other very well. I mean, Bruno's got the great returns. Murray's all over the net with just awesome hands. No look from Jamie Murray. Oh, that's cheeky. He's got the, the chip lob. They blanket the net, and they have a lot of experience. So I would say that they're in the hunt for a lot of these tournaments. Yeah, the interesting
3: team to see this year is probably uh, Roger and Mello. Two guys that have been around a long time. They've had success with different partners. They've won slams. Both just veterans. You have Mello, the tall guy, solid on the return, solid on the volleys. Marcelo Mello, six foot eight, the giraffe as he's known, and then Roger's. You know, explosive at net, great athlete. You know, they're coming together probably for one of their last partnerships of their career, and I, I look for them to do some damage this year as well.
4: Yeah, it'll be interesting um, to see the personalities, how they match up, because we know that chemistry is big in doubles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've battled over the years. They've probably played 20 or 30 times. Is there any bad blood that's going to seep in there? It's going to probably take a little while for these new partnerships to blossom, but they're both individually great players. Oh, you
3: are kidding me. What a point. That is outrageous. Which team that's continuing together do you think will have the most momentum coming into 2021?
4: Cabal Farah, they're going to start off pretty hot, I, I bet. And Herbert Mahut, those are the two teams in my mind that right now are the favorites. Herbert Mahout Mahut, they've won all the slams. They've done it all, so I say they are extremely focused. They both bring huge serves, all-court games. They really get along well, and then Cabal Farah, they're they're celebrities down in Colombia now that they finished number one, one Wimbledon in the US Open, and um, no one works harder than those guys. You see them every day. They're, they're in the gym, they're on the court, they got a great coach, and they do the X's and O's extremely well. They get tight to the net.
0: Great hand skills at the net from Farah there.
4: make a lot of great moves, and they play well under pressure. The doubles is is wide open. I think whoever finishes number one is going to have to win one or two slams. Yeah. and. Um, you know, there's 10 or 15 just great teams. If you had to pick one, give it to me. I mean, uh, I gotta go with the American Rajiv Ram. He's a veteran, and I think he's just super talented and super focused.
3: Oh, what a way hey, to perfect. clinch the opening set. Rajiv Ram, take a bow.
4: He's just a you know great server, serves so like Sampras. Now he's playing with Salisbury, who's coached by Louis Caillet, and he's a great athlete is just strong and so he brings athletic ability with Rajiv's talent. Good pick. What about you? I'm looking for the Colombians
3: to maybe bounce back. Um, I know their results in a shortened year last year weren't what they expected and what they wanted. Uh, one of them got sick. They weren't able to play all the tournaments they, they hoped to play. So I think they're going to come back with extra motivation to make a mark, kind of pick up where they left off in 2019. This has been great chatting about this year and it's going to be fun
4: to see how it shakes out. I'll be watching it every day, wishing I was out there, <laughs> kicking their butts.
0: <laughs> so, Chris, they, Brian's a big dad, Marion Suarez, Raymond Salisbury, and Farah, Eber, Mahu, Roger and Mello. Although they're not going to be a pair in Australia. So there's a few to pick from. we in our time capsule. So if you go back a couple of podcasts from now, we did a time capsule. All the commentators on ATP Tennis Radio, except Jill Krabus and put our predictions of how we think the season were going to go. We picked uh, Mekdic and Pavic we did. as the top team, and yes. we're still united on that. The wheels haven't fallen off that just yet. No,
1: not yet. No, I mean, look, I don't think you can judge until at least the end of the Australian Open. Although it's interesting to note that uh, the doubles final here featured the top two seeds, Cabal and Farrar, against uh, Murray and Suarez.
0: Yep. Well, well, we'll see. Why don't we We'll park that conversation for our next podcast okay because we'll have had a, a bit of a sample size we'll, we'll dissect the du- men's doubles draw next week yeah okay um, just some other news around the place speaking of Murray let's talk about Andy very briefly because Andy's playing in Biella, in Italy in a challenger event uh, good to see him back playing he's gone through all of the quarantining and all the requirements he is there and he is ready to go and that will be an interesting tournament to see how he how he goes first
1: up do you know I think this is far better for him than if he'd come to Australia um when you've had the kind of medical history that he has in the last two or three years, to come back at a slam is asking an awful lot of your body. He needs to start playing matches over the best of three sets. The, you know, the longest he'll get is a long three-setter. Uh, you know, remember what happened at the US Open when he played uh, first round of four hours and 40 minutes? That isn't going to help him. He needs to actually build up and get the, uh, get the tennis miles on his clock. And... I think, uh, you know, he could be in reasonably good shape by the middle of the year.
0: Well, we need to focus... Well, we keep you an eye on Andy Murray. We'll have more on him next week in our podcast. But we also need to focus on ATP Tennis Radio and AO Radio. It all gets underway Monday of day one of the Australian Open and all the way through the two weeks, the men's matches, the women's matches. It's going to be a hell of a
1: lot of fun. It is. Um, I mean, I think we just need to celebrate the fact that tennis is happening I know that tennis is not the be all and end all. There are people around the world who've lost loved ones, and even if they haven't lost them, there are people recovering with lung damage, and all sorts of other things. That you know, we've focused so much on COVID that we forget that there are other illnesses as well, and uh, you know, various conflicts going on around the world. And yes, tennis is light relief, but on the basis that a lot of people are holed up and not a lot. To get their teeth into at the moment if you're into tennis then i think it's great that one of the four major tournaments that uh, uh, around which the year generally revolves is actually happening and i think that's a chance for the tennis world to come together and there'll be some good stories and there'll be some um human interest stories over the course of the fortnight one i'm looking forward to i know As we're ATB Tennis Radio, we generally talk about the male players, but on the basis that tennis has the ability to throw up great stories, there's one from the women's event a player called Francesca Jones, who uh, uh, is missing three toes and two fingers uh, because of a condition that she's had since uh, she was very young, told she would never be able to make it as a professional, has come through qualifying and is into the main draw of the women's singles. That's the kind of story that we will, uh, you know, that will inspire us whatever our personal background is. And that's the kind of story that this fortnight can throw up. It will not be a, um, an earth-shattering event because there are more important things going on, but it will be something that we can all really enjoy, even if it's only a distraction from some of the bleaker things of life.
0: That's it. And that's it for us for this week. Remember, ATP Tennis Radio live channel, which you can find on the TuneIn Radio website and app, as well as via the Listen button on the ATP website. And we're rebroadcasting the Australian Open's radio coverage courtesy of AO Radio, and Chris and I will be on that coverage along with a couple other voices that will be familiar to those of you listeners on ATP Tennis Radio, including Steve Pearce and Jill Cravis. And then, remember, we'll be back here next week to dissect week one of the Australian Open. We'll take a closer look at the doubles draw and bring you all the news that you need to know. There's plenty still to come over the next fortnight. So from all of us here at Melbourne Park, stay safe and enjoy the tennis.